Uh, so excited to get back into this, to jump back into Romans, continuing in, in, in our, our message as we, we work through Paul's letter here, trying as he's uh, trying to present this case for the gospel. So go ahead and uh, open your Bibles up to chapter 6. We're moving into a new, a new section here as uh, Paul is getting ready to, to help uh, the believers to see what it lo- looks like to live a holy life. Uh, you look at it in three ways over these next three chapters. Uh, and so today we're going to look at, at what it looks like to be freed from sin. Because that's where we are. So go ahead and open up to chapter 6. Fire up your devices. If you don't have a Bible, of course, the pew Bibles there in front of you are pre-marked for the, the proper uh, section. So go ahead and open it up. And if you don't have a Bible at home, again, we encourage you to take that with you. That's our gift to you. Uh, it's, it's a small way of, of our showing how much we love you and just to give you God's word to have. So as many as you know, uh, as we get started here, we're, we're from the Midwest. Actually, we kind of got a little bit of the taste of the Midwest here uh, with some tornado warnings, but I can tell you those weren't any type of tornado-producing cells, uh, not like what we have at least back home. But we're from Kansas City in the Midwest area, and it was kind of neat. This weekend, we'd actually gone to a planter, uh, church planting uh, gathering with the BCNE down in, in Mass, and got to meet a planter, getting ready to plant in Manchester, Connecticut, that is from Kansas City. Had a connection. He's been uh, serving out in Vermont here and getting ready to launch down there. And we got to talking about just the differences between here and there. And in, in the Midwest, it's very flat. It's a lot like this gym. There's, there's no real trees. Uh, we don't have any real mountains. We've got some small mountains down south in the Ozarks. Uh, there are no oceans. We are definitely landlocked, a long way from any type of body of water. But what we do have is we have a lot of agricultural land. Uh, when you fly in, it looks like a checkerboard. Uh, there's just different sections. A lot of it is cropland. We grow a lot of corn. We grow a lot of soybeans, some sunflower and milo. But we also have a lot of, of livestock, cattle, uh, some chicken farms down south near the Tyson's plant. And there's even some hog farms around. And that's what I want to kind of talk about is the hogs. Uh, and maybe not on the, on the larger scale, but even just on the smaller. You know, I had a buddy that he, he had cattle, but he kept a couple of hogs just to, to be able to provide for their family some, some pork. And hogs are an interesting creature in the fact that, that they have no idea the danger that they are living in. They are, they are some of the happiest animals you'll ever see. They're at peace, they're calm, they're not violent. They just love where their life is, but they're right on that precipice of danger. You see, they live in, this, in, in, in a pigsty. I mean, it's very similar. If you've got teenage children, I'm sure you know what a pigsty looks like. Uh, but it's, it's, it's a place that's it's disgusting. A hog can't, uh, any swine, they can't protect themselves from the sun. They can't sweat. They can't uh, keep from being burnt. And so what they do is they, they get down and they wallow in the mud. That's hence when we talk about wallowing. They get down and they cover themselves from head to toe. But it's not just mud. This mud this, this, that they're covering themselves with is actually filled with not just dirt and water, but with their own excrement. So it is literally filth that they have covered themselves with. And they're happy. They like it there. It brings them joy to be in this place of, of disgustingness. And then the farmer comes out. My buddy would come out, and he just brings out their food. It's called slop for a reason. That's the sound it makes as it lands there in the, in the pen. But it's, it is the, some of the grossest stuff you've ever seen. It's, it's rotten food. It's stuff that's not worthy for anything else to eat. But a hog will eat anything. My chickens, I believe, are pigs with wings. They'll eat anything, too. But they will eat anything. Land, again, in their own filth, and their excrement. They're enjoying it. They're eating this food, and they don't know that they're just being fattened up. That everything they're doing is ultimately leading to their death. 
ultimately leading to them being slaughtered, dying for what brought them joy. And they're so blinded with where they are that given the opportunity for freedom, if you open the gates to the hogs, hogs won't run out. Hogs will choose to stay in that bondage that they're in as opposed to leaving and going in to a place of freedom. Well, today in this, in this passage, Paul is going to talk about the freedom that the believer now has, that they have been freed from sin, and they're no longer under the bondage of it, but we tend to stay there. We tend to want to stay and wallow in that filth of brokenness, that, 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 that disgusting slop of what was our lives. And Paul's saying that's, that's ridiculous. You don't need to be there. Something has changed. And so join me as we read through these first 14 verses. And then we're going we're to break this down. We're going to look at, at how Paul is showing the believer that they have been freed from sin. So beginning in verse 1, chapter 6, Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also shall live with him. Verse 9, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is a master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be a master over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. So, Father, thank you for the reading of your word. Lord, we invite you in here today. Speak into us as we look at this life that we have been given, freed from sin, out of the bondage and the weight of our brokenness. So we love you, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So beginning in verse 1, Paul does as he quite often does through this. He poses a question. Paul, very many times we have read, and we'll continue to see, poses questions through this letter. Uh, one commentator I read said that he counted 75 questions Paul asks throughout the book of Romans. I counted about 56. There's a lot. The vast majority of these questions have come from, more than likely, questions he's been asked as he has gone into the Jewish synagogues, as he's gone on his mission trips, going and, and planting churches in Ephesus and Corinth and beyond. He's, he's had these questions, so he, he addressed them. But this question, I believe, is like many of them also, and this, it's a rhetorical question. Paul is asking this question to, to get them thinking, to get their minds going, 
try and understand what was been said. He poses this first one in verse one. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? He, he poses this question based on what he had just said at the end of chapter five. If you remember last week, he said that as sin, as transgression would increase, grace would abound all the more. That the grace would come in even more through that. And so he asks this question because he knows what humans, the human nature is. We're going to try to find a way to justify when we do things wrong, when we sin, when we break the rules. If you have children, you know, children often try to justify why they did what they did. As a matter of fact, just reading those last two verses there in chapter 5, one could easily say, well, well, why should we do anything? Why should we change anything we're doing? We should just keep on sinning. It makes God look better. He can just pour that much more grace on us. Heinrich Hein, the German poet, he said, God will forgive, that is his business. It's this mindset that I can just do whatever I want because God's going to forgive us. And therein lies the problem. You see, this, this is who we are. We're broken and confused and self, self-justifying. And we've been so blinded, so blinded by our, our sin and our brokenness that that we don't even know where we are anymore. We've lost sight of where we are. Paul says you're free. In verse 2, may it never be. How shall we who who died to sin still live in it? Paul says you have been freed through your faith in Jesus. Why would you want to stay in sin? Why would you want to go back into that brokenness? You see, The hog won't leave the pen. That's what livestock does. It stays in captivity. Paul's saying, why would you want to be livestock? Why would you want to stay in this captivity? Stay in sin. Now look, he's not saying that it's impossible to sin. That if you've put your faith in Jesus, it's impossible for you to sin. That's that's legalism. That's setting up a bunch of rules to help you avoid, to try and keep you from being in sin. And when you don't, well, then the argument is, well, you've not been saved. No, but Paul's also not saying that believers can't be uh, enticed by sin, that they're free from the enticement of it. When you come to faith in that moment of transformation, there are sins, I believe, that God immediately sets you so far apart that you'll never return to them. I remember, my wife can attest it, after coming to faith, I used to chew, used to chew tobacco, and she remembers me getting up on the back porch and throwing it across the yard, and I've never chewed since. Never had the desire to. But I also believe that for each and every one of us, there are sins, might be a sin, maybe multiple sins, that we will battle our entire lives. That we will have to fight our entire lives and try to avoid. I've got a good friend that says he can't have one drink because he can't have just one drink. That's the sin he knows that he has to battle. And that's what Paul is trying to get us to understand that we don't have to be there. He tries to get us to see that, that living in sin is unnecessary and it's undesirable. There's no benefit to it. It doesn't benefit any one of us, especially the believer. There's no reason they should continue to live in that state. Maybe you've lost a loved one at some point. A spouse, a child. Maybe you've lost 
a, a parent, it would be unrealistic for you to continue living your life like that person was alive. Their death has changed your relationship with them. It's changed. It's not the same. You could live like they're still alive. You could pretend, but it's unrealistic. There's no reason to do it. You shouldn't do it. You shouldn't continue in that path. Well, what Paul's saying is for the believer, there's no reason. It's illogical for the believer to willfully continue living a life in sin. Like nothing had changed because that's, that's the deal. Something has changed in their life. And not only is it illogical, Paul says that it's shameful. It's shameful to stay in that, that place of filth. The idea of a child that commits wrong, that sins, simply because they know their parent will forgive them, that's, that's, that's preposterous. It's ridiculous. We've seen it. We've seen politicians' children. We've seen superstars' children that, that do wrong with the law and just know they're going to get away with it, and it's despicable. Well, listen, just because we know that our Father will forgive us doesn't mean we should keep walking that path of brokenness. doesn't mean we should continue to wallow in the filth of sin and shame. And so to understand our freedom in sin, this freedom that Paul is talking about, we need to understand some relationships. This isn't a relationship between husband and wife. Not a relationship between co-workers or siblings. This is a relationship between us and the pieces of brokenness. The first relationship Paul looks at is he talks about our relationship to sin. We need to look at what our relationship is to sin now that, that something has changed. You see, he said that we've died to sin. That's what he said there at the end of verse 2. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? We have died to sin. Our relationship with sin has taken a drastic turn because we have died to it. We have passed on, just like that, that, that loved one that's gone on. There's something that is, was changed from the death. Dying to sin, it's part and parcel with becoming a Christian. When you become a Christian, you die to sin. Paul reminds them of their baptism. He says, and do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? He reminds them that their baptism, that when they were baptized with Christ, that is the moment that they died to sin. Now listen, we all, we know what baptism is. We got to celebrate our first baptism here a month or so ago. Man, it's so exciting to see that outward profession of an inward change. Back then, the new believer... It would have been part of their initiation into the church. They would have professed Christ. They would have taken the new believer. They would have undressed him, put him in a body of water where they would have repented of their sins and they would have immersed them in water. It's this imagery. We do the same thing. Paul actually talks about it. We've been buried with him in death, buried in baptism, raised to walk. This idea of going down, Christ being dead and placed in the earth, and then his resurrection three days later. But Paul's not talking about the symbolic baptism here. Paul is reminding them they have been through a true baptism. And true baptism only comes through the Holy Spirit. 
That's where our true baptism comes. That is when that moment, when we have that heart change, when God brings us from darkness and into life, and the Holy Spirit enters into us and unifies us with Christ in everything that Christ has endured. Everything that Christ has been through, we have been there. That's his death, his burial, his resurrection, his crucifixion. We have endured it all. We become united with him. You see, Paul is trying to get the believer to believe what they believe. You'll hear me say this a lot throughout this series. He did it with the Jews. He's now doing it with, with the believer. He's reminding them just so that they'll believe what they had already put their faith in. You see, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you become unified with him in every way. Every possible way you have been connected. You die the death that he has died. And because you have died that, well, he is raised to life. And we are raised into a new life. As a matter of fact, if you look at Corinthians 15, Sam, you want to pull that one up for me? The first one? He's not on the ball. There. <laughs> nope, that's not the right one, son. 2 Corinthians 15, uh, or I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 5, 7. We're not on the same page here today. 5, 7, or 17, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, the new things have come. You are a new creation in Christ. Called to walk in that newness. To live a life that that outwardly shows that you have been changed, that you have been redeemed. Well, Paul wants to talk about this newness of life. He wants to help them see what this newness looks like. You see, this newness of life is a life that's not under the bondage of sin. He tells them in verse 5, they've been united. The believer's been united with Christ. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be united with him in his resurrection. We have been connected in both. He has become our representative. Just as Adam was our representative and his sin was imputed into us, through our faith in Jesus, God has imputed both his death and his resurrection to us. We receive the benefits. And Paul says you need to know this. It's important. Paul uses the word know three times in this passage. We'll look at them here as we go. He says, you need to know this because it's so crucial to understand your relationship with sin. In verse 6, he says, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we will no longer be slaves to sin. He says our old self. That was who we were prior to our conversion. The life that we have lived... For some of us who come to know Jesus at an early age, that's a very short period of time. For some, like myself, who didn't come to know Jesus until 40 years old, there's a whole lot of old self. There's a whole lot of oldness, but that old is gone. It has died and put into a newness. But just because that old self is gone doesn't mean that we still can't adopt the old ways doesn't mean that we still can't adopt, can't partake back into our sin. We're still in a broken world. We're still surrounded by the brokenness of sin. And so it's very easy to lapse back into that. 
But Paul's trying to remind them that that person is gone. As a matter of fact, not only that, but he reminds them that death ends all claims. In verse 7, for he who has died is freed from sin. Death ends all claims. I know we've talked about death here a lot the last couple weeks. It's just part of life. When a person leaves this earth, when they die, every obligation they have on this earth is done. There is nothing. You don't have to come back and finish something. It's over. Your, your family may have some obligations, but you have no more earthly obligations to have to take care of. They're gone. They're wiped out. Well, Paul's saying that through Christ, he has freed us from sin, that obligation. No longer are we obligated to our sinful nature. It's still there. It still is there. Sinful nature still surrounds us. But we don't have to give in to it. We don't have to, to partake in it. Because we've been freed. We have been freed from it. It doesn't mean that our our. our the sin will cease to try and entice us. doesn't mean they'll cease to try. Uh, we'll still fight those fleshly desires throughout all of our lives. But what it means is that, that we no longer are under the bondage of it. We don't have the weight of sin weighing down on us, holding us in our brokenness. Do you want to be freed from the weight of sin? Do you want to be freed from, from the shame and the guilt of your past? Of all the wrongs that you have done? There's only one way to do that. That's through Jesus Christ. Through faith in him, you can be freed from everything. You will have died to your sins and be raised to a newness of life. You'll be a new creation. It doesn't mean you're going to have a new nature. You're still going to have that sinful nature. You're still going to have that war going on inside us between our, our sinful nature and the indwelling Holy Spirit. They both will be there fighting back and forth. You see, the reason they fight is because we struggle with the old and new. We struggle with both the old and new. We have the choice. We can either live like we were but no longer are, broken sinners, slaves to sin. That's how we were but no longer. Or we can live like we are because of Christ, a new creation that's been redeemed, that's been forgiven, that has been cleansed by the perfect blood of the Lamb no longer held underneath that bondage. You see, the, the, the unsaved person might think that they aren't a slave to sin, that they're not a slave to it, but unfortunately they are. But what, what do we always hear? I, I can do this. I, I, I'm in control. I can stop whenever I want. On the other hand, the Christian may think they are still a slave to sin, but they're not. They can say, I, I, I'm never going to get out of this pit. I'm never going to get out of this place of brokenness. I'm going to be stuck here forever. There's no hope. Let me tell you, those are both, no matter what side of the fence you're on, those are both lies by the enemy. Because if he can keep you ignorant, then he can keep you helpless. If he can keep you convinced that you're in control and you've got it all under your power and that you're okay, you're helpless. You're still under that bondage of sin. And if he can convince the Christian of what they aren't, keep us going back seeking to the Lord what he's already done, and that's the forgiveness, 
He's keeping us helpless. Christ has broke the yoke of slavery. On our own, we are still being dominated by the weight of sin, the guilt and shame that we have. But in Christ, we are free of that bondage. And that's what Paul is trying to tell him. That relationship with sin has changed because you're no longer in the old self. You're in this new self. You're in Christ. And so it's changed. And the next relationship, he, he progresses from there. He wants to go into this relationship we have with death. The relationship to death. Again, Paul wants to get them to believe what they believe. He does this a lot. We see that, uh, that he repeats himself quite often in this for a reason. Because he wants them not to just believe it, but he wants them to, to, or to understand, he wants them to believe it too. It's easy to say, yeah, I know that. But he wants, do you really believe this though? In verse 8, he says, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Those go hand in hand. If you had the death with Christ and you're unified with him in all aspects, well, then you get the resurrection too. You get the life. He is the living God, not the dead God. He is alive. And so our freedom has a problem with our relationship with death. Death was because of sin, but Christ has defeated death. And we're unified with him. How did he defeat death? He, was he died, he was buried, and he arose on the third day, proving he was God. Proving that death had no control over him. It also means he can never die again. Verse 9, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again because death is no longer a master over him. Look, Christ's resurrection was the decisive and final break with death. A decisive and final break with death. It wasn't just a good thing that happened. It was a major impact in the course of history. And I know it's, it can be easy to say, well, well, what does this mean? What's this mean for us? We still see people die. There's death all around us in the world. What, what does this mean for the believer? What's it mean for the non-believer that, that he has defeated death? Well, let me, let me try and help us understand what Paul is saying here. You see, when Christ came to earth, he came under the influence of the old age. That was the influence of sin, the influence of, of the law, the influence of death. But when he was resurrected, he ushered in a new age. One where death has no power over him, nor does it have power over the ones who belong to him. He has become our representative. Remember, there's two representatives. You have Adam, bound by death. And you have Christ, who has overcome it. And we are his. What that means is there's no spiritual death for those who are in Christ. We can have hope because we live in the one who lives. And that's where that hope comes from. Yes, there's still a physical death, but we have this promise of eternal life through Christ. Because of what he's done through dying for sin. And listen, this is crucial too. When, dice, when Christ died for sin, he died to sin once and for all. When he died for sin, he died to sin once for all. See, Christ, he was sinless. But God treated him as though he was sinful for our sake. In first, or 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, 
It says, he, who made, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Christ died so that he could overcome death. And by overcoming death, he can't do it again. Death is not a master of him anymore. He can't die. His sacrifice, right? If he had to die again, then that meant his sacrifice wasn't good enough. And the reason I bring this up is because we've had conversations here. Maybe you've had some influence with Catholic background. Maybe you've got family members. Go to this passage with them and ask them why at Catholic Mass every week they represent, reoffer, and re-sacrifice Christ. If God's word says he died once and for all, why does he have to die again every week? He doesn't. He's not a slave to death. He's overcome it because he's God. But even though he was God, he was also 100% man. Christ is two in one, 100% human, 100% God. Doesn't make sense in our mind that one plus one equals one, but it does. And because he was man, death had authority over him in his human nature, the nature that he got from Adam, but it didn't have authority over him in his divine nature. So therefore, he had to die. Even though he never succumbed to the power of sin, he had to overcome the authority of death. And that's what he did. That's what he did. By dying and laying there for three days, when he came back, he overcame that power. He overcame it. And in doing so, it says he now lives for God. Verse 10, for the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Now, now Paul's not saying that he ever lived his life without seeking God. No, he sought God in every way. What he's saying is now his resurrection has, has opened the door for new power to, for God's will. It has opened that door for broken sinners to not have to face that fear of death, for their relationship to change. And so like our representative, like Christ, if you have put your faith in him, Paul says, we should live for God, a life for God also. In verse 11, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God and Christ Jesus. You see, when you are united with Christ, you can consider yourself as those that are not under the dominating effects of sin and death. I told you Paul used the word no three times. Verses 3, 6, and 9. He's repeated himself throughout this passage. He wants them to know three things. The crucifixion. He wants them to know the unified they have with death and the unification they have in his resurrection. He does so because he doesn't want them just to know it. He wants them to believe it. He wants them to, to fully grasp that in their hearts so they can overcome this desire to fall back into that life of sin. A life with Christ as your Savior is a life free from death. He lives, so we get to live with Him. 
And death no longer controls him. It doesn't control us because he has the victory. In 1 Corinthians 15, there you go, Sammy, now we got it coming up here. Verses 55 through 57. It says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. When God pours his grace out on you through his son Jesus, everything changes. It all changes. The old is gone. You're not bound by that anymore. So that means we have to believe if everything changes, that that means that our relationship with sin and our relationship with death has had to have changed too. We have to believe that. Because the problem is if we don't believe that, if we start forgetting that we're not under the bondage of sin, if we start forgetting that death has no power over us, then we will be more tempted to yield to sin, to give in to temptation. And that's the last relationship that we're going to look at today. There's one more we're going to look at next week. But today, we'll look at that, our relationship to temptation. Not just to sin, not to, to death, but to temptation. Just because we are freed from the bondage of sin doesn't mean we are freed from the temptation of it. Does not mean that we are freed from that temptation. We are tempted on a daily basis. I think sometimes it's done on purpose. Speed limits, I'm pretty sure that those are merely a suggestion. It just tempted me to see how, because my, my speedometer says 120, that only says 55. Somebody's tempting me. This week we went to Home Depot. We finally finished up the six-month remodel of our bath. Don't ever remodel something when you're planting a church. We finally finished up. Had to go buy some outlets. As we got back out to the, to the truck, I noticed there was an outlet laying there in the bottom. It's $1.50, but I hadn't paid for it. I, it got missed. I was tempted to just keep that. They wouldn't miss it, but I couldn't. My conviction drew me to go back in and pay for it, which gets people to look at you in a funny way. We're tempted by movies and TV that want to, to glamorize adultery and sexualize everything in the world. We are surrounded by temptation. It's there, but Paul says, don't let it reign over you. Don't let your body succumb to it. In verse 12, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey the lusts. Remember, sin's not our master anymore. Christ is. And so Paul says, don't let your body give in to the lust. Now, these aren't just physical lusts. Often that's what we want to think of as the physical lust. This goes beyond that. This is the mental lusts. Greed. Envy. Sloth. Coveting. All things jealousy. These mental pieces. Paul says, don't let any of that. Don't let your body give in to any of it. You're not there anymore. You have been bought, paid for with a price. Why would you want to go back into that? As Peter said, it's like a dog returning to its vomit. Why do you want to go back into that? He, he also tells us don't be tempted to use our, our natural, uh, uh, our, our natural uh, abilities, our natural capacities to commit sin. This isn't... There in uh, verse 13 says, do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. This isn't just like 
He's not talking about our, our physical, you know, just our hands and our eyes. He's, he's talking about all aspects of, of what we have, our, our, our capabilities, our abilities, our resources. We can be tempted to use our finances for sin. Ways that aren't godly. We can be tempted to use our friends and our family or buy our friends and our family. We can be tempted to use in our jobs. That could be a way we could sin. As we're trying to, to climb the corporate ladder, willing to do whatever it takes, even if that means I have to stomp on some people, I have to lie to some people, we can be tempted in our abilities and our resources. And Paul says, don't. Don't let that happen. You see, the reason we can avoid temptation is because we're now all under, all under grace. As he finished up there in 13, he says, but present yourselves to God as those alive from dead and your members of instrument, as member, or instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be a master over you, for you are not under law, but you're under grace. Satan used the law to hold us down. You're never going to be good enough. God's not going to forgive you for that. You're never going to get out of this. You may as well give up. But God has given us grace as our authority. And grace says you are forgiven. You are redeemed. And you are free. You have been freed. We're not under that slavery of sin. So we need to make that choice not to pursue the temptations, not to pursue sin, but to pursue a life that lives for God. You see, the believer has two options. They can present themselves to sin, go back to our old ways, like the hog and the waller, or we can present ourselves to God and the way he has created us. Holy, perfect, redeemed. The unbeliever, the unbeliever, they have choices too, but it's limited. For that one that's not saved, it's limited. For that person, they can make some right choices. But they can never overcome the dominating effects of sin in their life. It won't happen. You see, for both of us, there's a threefold enemy of temptation all around us. There's the world. The world is trying to tempt us. The only way to overcome that is you have to flee the world. The second temptation, and that's the flesh. That's our own desires. The only way to avoid those, to get away, is you have to deny it. And the third is the devil, the enemy. And the only way to do that is to resist it. As Christ resisted the, the enemy, resisted Satan in the wilderness, we're called to resist it. The only way to truly avoid all these temptations is to let the Holy Spirit transform you, beginning with your faith in Christ and that ongoing process of sanctification. To let him transform you. You've got to ask yourself, are you letting the Holy Spirit transform you or are you still living that life that is ruled by sin? Because if you're not, it means one of two things. Either you're not truly a Christian or you have not truly fully submitted yourself to the Lord yet. You haven't truly submitted yourself to him. Hand it over to him. Be freed from your sin and live that life for God that Paul tells us to live. And it's simple. 
You want to know how to live a life for God? It's simple. There's three ways to do it. Deny self, emulate Christ, and obey the scriptures. You deny self, that temptation of flesh is gone. If you emulate Christ, you're going to resist the enemy. And if you obey the scriptures, you're going to follow the will of God, and the world will not be able to tempt you. God has opened the gate. He has opened the gate for us to come out of the filth of our lives. Why would you want to go back in there? If you have handed it over to Christ, why would you want to stay in that brokenness? Why would we ever want to return? But we do. We do because we are still surrounded by a world that tempts us. We need to remind ourselves, for those who are in Christ, remind yourself that you are freed that your relationship with sin, your relationship with death, and your relationship with temptation have changed. You are no longer under the bondage of any of those because you are unified with Christ. If you haven't put your faith in him, maybe you think you still are good. Maybe you think you've got it all under control. You don't. That's the hard truth. But there's hope. There is hope, and that hope is the gospel. The hope is that God created you on purpose and for a great purpose. And that was to have a right relationship with him. But unfortunately, because of sin, sin that entered the world through Adam, that came in through Eve, it has progressed through every generation to each and every one of us. We are separated from a holy and perfect God. There's something in between us. Just as this book, there's something between my hands. Our sin is a barrier between us and God. But God in all his wisdom saw our greatest need, and that was for a savior. So just the right moment in time, he sent down his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to be born of a virgin and to live a sinless life. Christ went to the cross where he was crucified, bore the wrath of God for the sins of man, and he died. He died and he was buried, put in that cave, in that grave for three days. But on that third day, he emerged, proving he was who he says he was and he could do what he says he could do. He overcame the power of death, and he changed the trajectory of the whole world. The Bible tells us if you profess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you too can be saved. He has offered freedom, free at last. It's all through his son. It's not through anything we can do. It's only through him. If you've not put your faith there, that's the first step. Come into this, this, this space of grace that, that, that feels weird to know that you're no longer weighed down by brokenness as you watch Christ go to Calvary for your sins. But it's an amazing place to be. If you've never pr prayed for Christ, if you've never truly received him, if you've got questions, I'd love to visit with you. Come up and see me. As we get ready to do our, our final hymn, if the team wants to come up, we'll do our final hymn here. I'll pray. And then afterwards, come on up and, and during the song, don't be shy. If you just need somebody to pray with you, get, uh, that's what we're here for. That's what I'm here for. There's, there's no, no embarrassment, no shame in this. Come join us. So let me pray for us. Oh, gracious Father. Oh. God, the words leave me. You have done so much. What more could I ask you? 
You have already done it all, Lord Jesus. As you laid it all out on Calvary, although you were sinless, you went and bore the death that was due to me. That was due to the entire world. You have freed us from sin. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Lord, for those who have not trusted in you, oh, please, let today be the day. Those who may be here, those who may hear online, let today be the day as they hear this message that you get a hold of their hearts, that they can feel the love that was poured out on that cross that they can feel those shackles being broken as they trust in you. No longer under the weight of sin and shame. Let today be the day that you call them from darkness and into life. Father, for those of us who have put our faith in you, let us not forget where we are. Not to return to our brokenness, to our sinfulness. Let us remember that we are redeemed. We are holy. We are chosen. We are yours. And we have been freed. You are our Lord. You are our master. Lord Jesus, you are the one who is in control over us. Let us cry out in your name to avoid temptation. As we read earlier today, Christ when told us how to pray. And he prays to the fathers, we pray, lead us not into temptation. Father, we pray that you will keep us out of that temptation of sin, out of the brokenness of our lives. Help us to repent, to turn to you when we feel weak, to find our strength. So Lord, we love you. We are so thankful for the gift you have given to us. And we pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. 